Bitcoin hodlers across the world. I think only number probably 100 to 200 million, which is awesome. I mean, that's <laughs> that's incredible that we're in the hundreds of millions era of Bitcoin hodlers. But I think you know the real game begins at a billion, and we're we're getting close. Hello there from Bedford in the United Kingdom. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today we're going to kick off with Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin. And I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017. And you know what? I'm still using the same Nano S I bought back then. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. And if you are an Android phone user, you can connect that to your Nano S and manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please do head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, we have Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I still have not sold a single sat through Gemini because we're in a bull market. I am only increasing my stack. And I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. And you know what? I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing. And that is all through one clear, attractive interface. Now, if you want to find out more, please do head over to Gemini.com, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com. And next up, we have Revolut. Now, I've been talking about this for quite some time. Lloyd's TSB, my banker for over 25 years, closed down all of my accounts recently. They clearly don't like Bitcoin. And when Revolut heard about this, they reached out to me and they said, Pete, we like Bitcoin. We won't close down your account. Why don't you come and join us? So I did. I set up my account. I think within two hours, I had everything transferred across. And if you become a Revolut customer, if you sign up, they are offering $20 or £20 to all new customers who complete three card transactions. It only takes a few minutes to set up and you can add that card straight to Apple Pay and immediately get that cash in your pocket. But I wouldn't get that cash. I would convert it straight to Bitcoin. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to revolut.com forward slash WBD, which is R-E-V-O-L-U-T dot com forward slash WBD, and you can get your bonus. And also, let's talk about BlockFi, who recently announced the launch of the BlockFi Visa Rewards Signature Card. Now, for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin and stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards Cards provides the easiest way for you to stack your sats because you get 1.5% rewards back on all card purchases, and there is no annual fee. But not only that, you can earn 3.5% back in Bitcoin during your first three months of card ownership. And if you spend over $50,000 in a year, you'll earn 2% back on everything over that amount. If you're interested in finding out more, then please head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. What's up, brother? How's it going, man? Yeah, good to see you. Good to see you in person again soon. Yeah, we're going to be in Texas soon. I think you're coming up to BitBlock Boom. Yep, Dallas. Uh, I th- for some reason, I thought it was in Austin. I don't know why, but it's, uh, yeah, I'm going to go out to Houston first and something that Parker Lewis has got on. So I'm going to fly into Houston and then I'm going to drive up to Dallas. I think I'm going to do a day. Well, I haven't got a ticket, actually. I've got to ask Gary. I should message Gary, actually. But uh, I think I'm going to be about. So, And then maybe at the end of October, you can hang out, man. Yeah, well, uh, we got to do the uh, Texas typical things. Maybe get you on a horse, shoot some yep. guns, get some barbecue. Yep. Can we do all at the same time? Can I shoot guns while riding a horse? You are legally allowed to shoot guns while riding a horse while eating barbecue. <laughs> I it's it's actually, you know, when, when you're birthed in Texas, 
your your mother goes on a on a bull, and then they just they kind of pop you out. That's the that's how you get birthed in Texas. I'm gonna I'll have to bring my hat that I bought with Jimmy Song, my cowboy hat. Wear that as well. <laughs> it's a good Dude, look for Jimmy. I, I like his cowboy hat look. It does. It looks shit on me. I've tried it. I look terrible. I look like a fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> but dude, I'm looking forward to it. You know how much I love Texas and it's your it's your home state. So I don't think we've hung out in Texas. It's always been New yeah, York we, we, or... We like Boston, New York, Riga, yeah. Yeah. all over the place. Miami. We've never actually oh. done Texas. Yeah. It's good to be back in the homeland. Yeah, man. You uh, glad to be back. You enjoying it? Yeah, I came... Um, girlfriend and I moved about a month ago and it... Texas feels like Bitcoin country. I mean, this is when I, so I'm originally from Dallas, left Dallas, went to San Francisco, and that's where I got involved, you know, like very early in the Bitcoin community out there. But to me, Texas always represented Bitcoin's ethos, I think most succinctly. Texas was its own country. It's one of the only states to be its own country and then join the union, the United States at a later date. And Texans are fiercely independent. I mean, there are more Texas tattoos here than you'd ever expect. There's Texas tattoos on people's necks. There's Texas tattoos everywhere. People love Texas. And the uh, Texans are so independent. Here's a few kind of funny quirks. One is that the idea of secession or like seceding from the union is very popular. Like that's a very popular topic of conversation the entire time I've been in Texas. A couple other kind of weird quirks. Uh, the University of Texas physically took physical delivery of their gold from the Federal Reserve because they didn't trust the Federal Reserve to manage their gold. There's no other university system in the United States that would do something like that. Also, in Texas school, you pledge allegiance to the Texas flag I and the American this. flag. Yeah, yeah. You, you pledge allegiance to the Texas flag, too. And, and so, no, I, I bring this up like when I lived in California and people were like, we never did that in California. I'm pretty sure no other states do that. So Texas has this very fiercely independent vibe. And then, of course, gun, guns and the gun culture are very, very uh, kind of intertwined with everything. Um, Texas just passed a no-license-required concealed carry. So you can concealed carry a pistol without having a, a license. So a license as in, uh, you know, a special registration requirement. So Texas is a very fiercely libertarian place. They're kind of like gold bugs who love guns, which is very similar to the profile of early Bitcoiners, you know, kind of kind of gold bugs who are into guns, very libertarian. But I think the one element, you know, and this is why Texas didn't become, you know, really into Bitcoin until very recently, is it's techie. You know, Bitcoin's considered like kind of geeky and techie, and Texas isn't as techie as like San Francisco, right? So I think that's what, what the limiting factor was. But I'm super excited to see all the work that the Unchained Capital team has done to build up a community out here and, and Jimmy mm -hmm. Song and others. So it's it's been awesome being here and there's there's a very strong Bitcoin community. Well, every time I talk to Parker Lewis, he's like, when are you coming? When are you moving here? And I'm like, bro, man, I really want to come. I really want to come. I'm trying to convince my son to consider University of Texas for college. It's a great got university. A good art school. Yeah, well, yeah. and he'll love it. The whole idea of the campus and going to the stadiums to watch the sports and he he's grown up seeing colleges in films and thinking that's the best life so i'm trying to convince him of it and i i've got a feeling next year when he finishes like high school we just call it school when he finishes high school and uh you know he's an adult i'm going to be spending a lot more time in texas i'm planning on doing me and my producer danny are thinking about uh early next year doing a month in texas and trying to do like set up a studio get people in and try and do it all in person. So it's definitely 
nice. my radar. I've loved it, dude. I've loved it every time I've been there. Let me tell you, actually, is it, this is an interesting setup for the conversation we're going to have because we're going to talk about the rise of Bitcoin nations. And uh, you now you're talking about Texas like it's almost a, a nation within a nation. Um, and the conversation I had with uh, Parker was in relation to some of the onerous regulations that come down from the federal government. Uh, but Texas feels like the kind of place that would would very much support Bitcoin at a regulatory level, very much support the idea that this is optionality for Texans. This is uh, this is an option outside of the US dollar, which is being printed at alarming rates. And it feels like more than any other state, this is the place where they'll put their flag in the ground and say, no, look, Bitcoin, we're having it here. It could be, it's almost like it could become the El Salvador of the US. Like, we want Bitcoin here. We want people to be able to use Bitcoin. You can do what the fuck you want. But And even if there was like really onerous regulations, that it's the people of Texas who would fight it and say, no, we do what the fuck we want. I think Governor Abbott has signaled very big interest in Bitcoin and crypto. He's been very pro-Bitcoin crypto. Now, I haven't done any work here, so I'm not going to speak on behalf of all the others like Parker Lewis and others, mm-hmm. uh, Chris Calicott, who has done like phenomenal work trying to get the spread the word of Bitcoin in the political sector over here. Um, but from my understanding, like I, th- I think they just announced that like banks can hold Bitcoin, yeah, which was a, which was a big deal. I forget exactly what it was, and that's where, you know, again these guys have done some great work. But um, I think that yeah, the kind of the because I believe that banks can hold gold, and, th- and this was under a similar sort of construct for Texas, where they could hold like it, it legally allowed Texas banks to hold Bitcoin. Um, yeah, it's. I think Texas, it's like the perfect culture for Bitcoin. That's where I was so surprised in the early days that it didn't catch on, but now we're finally starting to see that happen, and it's it's super inspiring too because it's my it's my homeland. So it's yeah, it's man. awesome to see folks get into it. it it's kind of weird though too. I mean, <laughs> I uh, you know now I've got around like four hundred thousand followers across different social platforms, I and mean, you've you've got almost the same. Mm. And when I walk around in Austin. Every other day or so, someone says hi to me. <laughs> they're, like, <laughs> they're like, hey, Dan, what's up? <laughs> so it's, hit, dude. It's been a, yeah, it's been a bit of an adjustment. I don't know if that happens, happens in Bedford at all, but in Austin, it seems like it's definitely Bitcoin country. It doesn't happen in Bedford. <laughs> no one gives a fuck who I am. <laughs> it doesn't happen <laughs> at all. I've had it happen a couple of times in New York, which is weird. And um, like uh, happened in London. It's always weird. I always find it weird. Uh, I found that thing, though. Texas says state-backed banks can offer custody services for Bitcoin as long as they have the proper tools to manage risk. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, look, it's a great setup for what we're about to talk about because the rise of Bitcoin nations is such a fascinating subject. And you know what? It, I've talked about this on the pod before, Dan. Like When I first was getting into Bitcoin and reading about it and reading the articles up on um, that Pierre Rochard, et cetera, produced up on the Nakamoto Institute and this idea of hyper-Bitcoinization, I was a bit like, yeah, whatever. Like, yeah, I get it. Bitcoin's cool and um, you know, censorship resistant and I can hold it and it's digital gold. But come on, let's be serious. We're never going to unsurp a... We're never going to unsurp a, uh, uh, gonna unsurp a um, uh, fiat currency or we're certainly not going to see one as a legal tender, yada, yada. Like, I get it. I get your hype, but like, no. And now here we are... <laughs> It is legal tender in um, El Salvador. I think it's 7th of September. So we're about a month away from that uh, pass. 7th of September or 9th of September? One of the two. I think it's 7th from that passing. And I don't think it'll be long till we see other countries do it. Um, uh, Hyper-Bitcoinization is is happening. Um, uh, the cat's out of the bag. Bitcoin isn't going away. Uh, we've seen every single attack 
be fought back. We can ban miners in China. They move to other locations. You can create tough regulations. People can move to other places. We have that regulatory arbitrage. We're we're at that hyper-Bitcoinization phase, and it's fucking fascinating, especially for you, man. Dude, you've been doing this, what, since 2012? Yeah, it's been a long time. I mean, set up my Mt. Cox account in 11, really got into it in 12, though. And then I think thir- you know, 13 was when I built my first company. So, it, it, yeah, it's been crazy to see it come this far. It, <laughs> if someone would have told us that Bitcoin is going to hit $10,000 someday, I think people would have been surprised in the early days. You know, we look back and history seems so linear and so sure, right? But it wasn't that sure at the time. I mean, the bottom of the 2015 bear was pretty dismal. Bitcoin printed like $180 of Bitcoin. And it had fallen from like $1,200 of Bitcoin. So that was like a pretty dismal moment. You know, there, there wasn't content. I mean, there was almost no podcasters. There was barely any sort of industry news sites. Um, there wasn't nearly like there was basically no YouTube content. So it was really hard to like feel, you know, feel like you were still believing in this trade. So to see it come all the way here where you've got uh, institutions going, oh, yeah, Bitcoin is definitely gold 2.0. It feels weird. It feels like <laughs> it doesn't feel real because we've been saying this for such a long time. And the fact that it's actually happening is kind of this weird moment of like, oh shit, I, <laughs> I was right. Yeah, man. Well, it's going to be a wild time over the next few years seeing how states will respond to it. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a shit show over here in the UK and Europe. Um, I think the US is way ahead of uh, Europe, which I think is why you see a high concentration of Bitcoin hodlers there, all the Bitcoin companies there. Um, it's always been... Um, a uh, great place for innovation anyway. But actually, even with some of the tight regulations you have, at least you have it and you know where you stand. Uh, it's kind of a bit vague here at times. And we've got banks not allowing people to get Bitcoin or not allowing them to transfer to ex- exchanges. But these regulatory arbitrage opportunities are existing. And I think you, know, you can take a look at Estonia, Malta, Texas, Wyoming, El Salvador, these flags are being put in the ground and these places are saying, we're in, we're on board. And So it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out. I, I kind of want to run through it a little bit with you, kind of imagine the hyper-Bitcoinization scenarios because I just uh, did an interview earlier today with Knut Svensson. I always pronounce his surname wrong. Oh, yeah. Uh, Knut. Um, and one of the discussions we, he said, he said there's like, there is no actual point of hyper-Bitcoinization. Like there's, it's just always happening. And I, I kind yeah. of came to a realization and discussed with him that uh, hyper-Bitcoinization isn't a collective thing. Like the gold standard was collective. It worked because nations signed up to it. And when a nation signed out of it, like it just didn't work, right? But the thing about hyper-Bitcoinization is that I think it's actually more of an individual thing. It's, it's a bit, When you set a Bitcoin standard, you set it for yourself. You don't need everyone to be on a Bitcoin standard, you just, it works when you're on your own. When you price things in Bitcoin, when you consider your investments in Bitcoin, when you consider your purchases, your savings, all in Bitcoin, then you're on that Bitcoin standard and you don't need everyone else to be on it. Yeah, money is a belief system. Gold, dollars, Bitcoin, it's all the same thing. It's all a belief system. Now, Bitcoin has superior traits as a money, which gives it objectively good, you know, it's objectively a better type of money. Um, And we can, you know, I don't want to get into those, but, you know, Bitcoin has objectively better traits, but it doesn't matter if it has objectively better traits if no one believes that it does. And so that doesn't happen in a binary moment when people all wake up and go, oh, I see why Bitcoin's valuable. It happens in ebbs and flows. And I kind of think about it, too, from a marketing perspective. There's something in marketing called last touch attribution and multi-touch, 
So last touch is like, okay, you saw a Facebook ad and that ad is the ad that we can attribute you becoming a customer of ours because you clicked on the button, I want to sign up and came over. But in reality, what happened was you began your journey to, to become a Kraken customer far before that. You, you probably saw like a Google search ad and you probably saw a blog post of ours and, and all these other touch points. That's multi-touch attribution. Your, your final convincing to become a customer happened over time. It wasn't this binary moment. And so with Bitcoin, it's probably the same thing, right? Like they heard about it in 2013, they didn't buy. They heard about it in 17 and they didn't buy. Their friends and one of their friends or family members definitely bought it at some point and told them about it. And it's these multiple touch points where I think we do see this kind of spin into greater and greater adoption at a faster rate because of the multi-touch nature, to, because people have had repeat exposure. Um, whereas before, like your first exposure, you're like, no, that seems like a scam, for sure. It seems like a Ponzi scheme, seems like a scam. But after the 50th exposure, you're like, why isn't this thing going away? <laughs> I, I don't understand how it works, but it's not going away. And more and more people I know are buying it and more and more institutions are buying it. And so that's where I think we do see hyper-Bitcoinization isn't like a binary moment, but I do think it's like an exponential growth moment where Bitcoin's entire existence has been exponential growth. But I think at the end here, the repeat exposure will have saturated people's consciousness so much to where there'll be very like big catalyst moments where there might be a big level step up in Bitcoin adoption. And we usually see this happen in the bull runs, but maybe we see this happen at different catalyst moments of trust where people have lost trust in their government. I think COVID was an example of, of what that might look like, but there might be others in the future where um, there's a really big breach of trust by a government or a bank and people go look at Bitcoin and they're like, you know what? I've heard about this thing for the last 10 years. This seems like a good solution. So um, I think that people's, basically people's a, a probability of, of converting to becoming a Bitcoiner grows increasingly over time because they can't ignore it. They can't ignore all their friends and family and all these different indicators, like maybe I should get into this. Well, I think you also have to think geographically as well, because maybe a lot of the conversations we have with people who aren't convinced are based in New York or Texas or London, etc. But I think you have to look at the wider net that Bitcoin brings in, because it is a truly global currency. It is, I mean, is it the only truly global currency? It probably is, because... I mean, anyone can accept any currency in any country. I mean, if I go into any country, people can accept dollars, right? But digitally speaking, it is the only, certainly final settlement, digital, global digital currency. So if you look just purely at your own geography and you consider it, maybe if you're in the UK or Europe or the US, it doesn't make as much sense. But if you're certainly if you're in Lebanon, we know it makes sense. If you're in Argentina, it makes more sense. So I think sometimes people will miss that. Sometimes people, you know, they, they don't, truly understand it to begin with. And and I think another one of the off-putting things is the volatility. Now, we understand volatility is the risk you pay for the reward. We understand that. But also, whilst we have multiple sovereign currencies, Bitcoin's always going to be volatile against at least one of them. <laughs> when it's stable in one place, it's volatile elsewhere because those currencies themselves are volatile. I think volatility is so interesting to see how people react to it where they would rather choose losing 2% a year, which is consistent, than take a bet where you have a very high probability of making many multiples over your initial principle. Just because the volatility scares people away. away. And that's where I think Bitcoin's kind of the perfect instrument of risk reward, 
where Bitcoin rewarded the early believers uh, because you got in before others. And that's not a Ponzi scheme. That's not a scam. It means we had the guts to do it. And we were the ones who deserved it the most. Everyone else heard about it and they were too scared by it. So Bitcoin rewarded the risk takers. And those risk takers, the ones who are the only ones who should be rewarded for that behavior. No one was granted this. No one was... No one was given this by the government. No one was handed. No, these Bitcoins weren't handed to them. You bought in because you believed and the only ones who still have coins are the ones who stuck through it. You know, so I think Bitcoin is well, like... Dan, it's you about, always, yeah. sorry, sorry to interrupt. It's you who always says, hodling isn't easy. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's actually the hardest thing to do because you have to resist <laughs> your emotions, right? You're resisting fear when it goes down and you're resisting FOMO when it goes up because with the FOMO, you might go, Oh, I could buy that car. I could buy that boat. I could buy that house. Um, and, and it's not necessarily a bad thing if you do sell, but just don't do it in like a frivolous manner. Like, you know, like if you go and you you bought 10 years ago, five years ago, and you're like, cool, if it hits this price, I need to go buy a home. Me and my partner have talked about that. That's totally okay to do. I'm talking more of the emotional trading, right? Where mm-hmm. someone puts it in two months ago and then they pop it right out. Um I mean, Bitcoin is is one, the most phenomenal bet of the 21st century, and you know, just to take it for a short ride, it's such a long, crazy journey. You know, you got to hop on that train for at least a at least a couple of years. You know, it's um for me, it's been almost nine, and I, I wasn't a perfect hodler. I don't think anyone's a perfect hodler. Um, and you know, I think you've been pretty open with some of your, your experiences, but uh, yeah. We all we all look at those transactions or those trades, and we're like, oh, why didn't I just hodl? You know, so. You know, since 2013, I figured it out. And I was like, okay, the only way to survive this thing is to hodl. Um, but it, it, it's it's this really interesting journey of like self-discovery internally, of like recognizing these these human emotions of fear and greed and trying to resist those. It's going down the rabbit hole and discovering things about energy and energy FUD and how energy FUD is tied with environmental concerns. And, 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 and it goes really deep down these different, and then government and governance. So people, people who can govern me, what, why can they govern me, and why do they, are why they able to dictate other aspects of my life, like what I can do with my body? And so it's just this. The, the hodler's journey is kind of this like hero's journey. And I forget there was a there's an author who wrote this, and I forget his name off the top of my head, but he had a really good piece on Bitcoin being the hero's journey, where you go through this sort of phased life of becoming a hodler. You know, that goes through like pits of despair and and realization and awakening. And the price is a, a huge component of that, right? You know, I think everyone going through a bull bear run, like I, I get, I give people, when if you've gone through a bull and bear market, I think you're an OG. I think that gives you the title of OG because, you know, it's it's a lot to go through, right? I, think, I mean, think about March 2020 last year. Dude. Bitcoin went 3,400, right? I mean, that was, is it the 34 or 38? I forget, but it was, that was intense. I think everyone remembers that. It was like a 40% plunge in one day. Yep. You know, those moments, I mean, there's there's so many of those because you had like Mt. Gox getting shut down, Silk Road getting shut down. You had like China banning Bitcoin a hundred times. <laughs> so it, yeah. it's been a long journey. And and that's where, yeah, I, I think Bitcoin is the most fair distribution out there because folks who risked it, held on to it, are the most deserving of it. Yeah, you're giving me PTSD from uh, the last five years. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, the mistakes I've made. Yeah, whatever. Listen, look, people always say, What's that thing? If someone had told you one thing that you'd learned before all this, what would it be? For me, it's like the number of, like Bitcoin is a game. The number of sats you hold is your score. And just try and constantly increase your score for when you need it later in life. 
that's that's the totally. game to me. Just keep stacking those stats. It's funny. I've I do enjoy bear markets more now. Having done, I'm on my second, well, kind of my third bull market. The first one doesn't count, but I'm definitely on my second bull market. I've been through a bear market. Weird as it sounds, I enjoy the bear markets more. I've said this before. I do. I do. Uh, you work harder. You get more done. You learn more. Uh, your conviction grows. Strangely, um, it's a it's a really strange experience to go through. But like even for you, Dan, like, did you honestly have the conviction that all this would happen? Something like El Salvador. Yeah, it was. Um, I mean, that's the short answer. I, I, it's uh, you know, I can put it into more um, you know bullet point you know reasons why. I mean. For me, I knew it was risky. Did I think it was? Did I think it might happen? Yes. Did I think it was very probable? I'd say I, I hoped it was probable, but I wasn't sitting there going like, "This is for sure going to happen." I thought about it more of like, "I want to help build this world to make that happen," and I think we've got a shot at doing it. Um, and I'm going to hodl and, and see it all the way through. So that that's kind of more of, of my thought behind it, like. I knew that we had discovered something that most other people had written off. You know, Bitcoin was this beautiful, beautiful creation that has all sorts of different aspects that are incredible in terms of like how it enforces decent, like how it, decentralization makes it stronger and, and the monetary policy breakthrough. And I realized I spent all this time going down the rabbit hole. Like I spent a long, long time, years. It took me years to get to these sort of levels. I wasn't like, I wasn't you know, talking as I talk about Bitcoin, I wasn't talking like this back in 2013. No one was. There were there was content built on top of content that enabled all of us to become to develop stronger convictions in in Bitcoin. So, for me, I think it was, you know, it was this the the sort of this gradual like leveling up of understanding. But I, I felt responsibility to go write content that was simple. Like I. I don't think a lot of my ideas are original. It's, I'm just making them simple. I just took existing Bitcoiners content and I was like, okay, well, no one reads this because it's too complicated. And I took that, refined, you know, like 15, 20 authors, put that all together and refined it into different pieces. You know, that's that's my gift is is simple, making, making things simple. And so the reason why I thought I might have an edge here is that it took me that long to get here and I was obsessed with Bitcoin that means there's very few of me. And others who haven't come to my realization, when they do, they'll likely buy Bitcoin. So in, in, all, you know, in all likeliness, we're early. And I think that they'll, they'll agree with my logic once they get there. So you know, the, we thought it was, you know, the early days we thought that like Bitcoin was inevitable or like had a good chance of succeeding or, or a decent chance of succeeding because we were the only ones who had spent the time to learn it. And so if others did, then we hypothesized that Bitcoin would rise in value and that more and more people would come to come to the same conclusion we did. And we were proven right. And I think we're still very early. I mean, Bitcoin hodlers across the world, I think only number probably 100 to 200 million, which is awesome. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's incredible that we're in the hundreds of millions era of Bitcoin hodlers. But I think, you know, the real game begins at a billion. And we're, we're getting close, you know, at the end of this bull run, if we still have, you know, I think the next six months, we still have an, a more more room for a bull run. If that happens, you know, we still, I mean, we could easily hit a billion by the end of 2021 or middle of 2022. 
Okay, I do have a message from my amazing show sponsors. And today we're kicking off with Casa, the safest way for you to store your Bitcoin. Now listen, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps and phishing attacks, there are just too many ways for you to have your Bitcoin lost or stolen. But with Casa, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again. Because a Casa multi-sig wallet allows you to take custody of your Bitcoin, but only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets. Ones which you get to distribute into different locations, protecting you from a range of mistakes, errors, and vulnerabilities. Now, I've been a customer for about a year now, so if you've got any questions, you can hit me up in my emails or my DMs, and I will get back to you. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Next up, we have my friends at sportsbet.io, the very, very best place for online gaming because they accept Bitcoin. And with the Olympics over, all eyes are back on football. I cannot wait. It's great to have fans back in the stadium. It was kind of weird last year. But listen, I'm going to be making some bets. I obviously think Liverpool are going to win. I'm obviously going to be betting against Tottenham because they're ridiculous. So very exciting. But if you want to check this out, Sportsbet.io always have a range of things available for you. They don't just have football. They have tennis and motorsports and esports and all kinds of crazy things. And they always have a range of promotions available for new customers. So if you want to check them out, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. And this week we're finishing off with Exodus Wallet, who I am using as my mobile and desktop wallet for Bitcoin. Now, as many of you know, UX is something I whinge about all the time. It's really important to me. We have to make it easier for people to use and understand Bitcoin. So when Exodus reached out and they said, Pete, we want to sponsor the show, I was like, well, come on, I've got to play with it first. And you know what? They killed it. Absolutely crushed it. That is why I am happy to recommend Exodus to my friends, my family, and you out there. Exodus Desktop gives you a way to secure and manage your Bitcoin in one beautiful application. And with their mobile wallet, you can send and receive safely using a QR code or address, knowing that Exodus automatically checks all addresses for errors. Make sure you check it out at exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google or Apple app stores. Well, listen, look, we said we we're going to talk about the rise in Bitcoin nations. Um, El Salvador has been the big story of the last few months. Uh, I've been there a few times. I'm going to drag you down there like you want to drag me to Texas at some point. What's your take on El Salvador? I think it's cool. I think, you know, there's there's a lot of folks who are really positive about it. And, you know, there's a lot of folks who have done a ton of great work down there. Um, I think it's, you know, it's great that the, we're seeing, and it, it's all an experiment, right? I mean, all that, that's what the United States was founded on is the idea of these different states would be able to experiment with policy and see what their customers wanted. You know, did they want legalized marijuana? Did they want XYZ banking protections? Um, that was the whole point of different states is that they allow for experimentation of policy. And so I think this is a really cool experiment of moving to the Bitcoin standard. I'm really thrilled to see how it goes and I, I wish everyone the best on that journey. Um, and I, I can't wait to go spend some time down there. At the same time, you know, it might be a little too early. Or, you know, we might be looking at it with rose-colored glasses where, you know, things might, um, you know, there might be incentives for different government officials to control their population. Um, so I'm not, you know, approaching it in a negative or positive way. It's more of like I see pros and cons and I wish, I wish it all the best and I'm really excited to see how it plays out. Well, let's work through it. Yeah, because I've got... Uh I'm I'm mostly positive. I think it's a great idea because it's an opportunity for 
many more people to get Bitcoin in their hands, to learn about it, to get hold of it, uh, hopefully understand it, manage it, store it in the right ways. But I also do have certain reservations myself. Uh, and I think that's a fair point to say, are we a little bit early for this? But look, someone has to take that bold first move and they're the ones to do it. And I'm fully supportive of this. But what do you see as the, the potential downsides or risks with this? You mentioned there, you know, someone in government having more control. Uh, one thing somebody raised, raised to me is that if there's a government wallet and everyone's using that government wallet, they have ability to track and see what every single thing people are purchasing and buying. Now, you could raise that to the government. They say, well, look, it's just the way the wallet works. We're not tracking it. We're not using it. But we don't know this. That's a potential you know, crackdown on privacy. There's also a weird conversion rate mechanism that they have where uh, merchants can exchange Bitcoin with fiat and the government has a certain amount of like $200 million of fiat or US dollars or something like that. So they're acting like kind of a quasi-reserve. Bitcoin was meant, Bitcoin is built because we can't trust governments and we can't trust central banks. So <clears throat> naturally, my inclination is not to trust a government. So I like the idea that a lot of people are using Bitcoin. I don't want ever completely trust a government's ability to manage like reserves or not spy on their citizens. So yeah, very much in that vein of of about control and um, yeah, I, you know, I I'd like to believe that they have altruistic intentions in that everything will will work out in a positive manner. But I uh, don't trust. I verify. So you know, I, I think that that's that's sort of my approach here. Right? Now, and and also, I think some of my fear too is that it's too early. And you've heard me champion this many many times about payments versus store value. You know, we. Bought this battle in thirteen and seventeen, and I'm I'm so old, so old. I feel like an ancient old man in this space because I'm like, the payments use case was too early nine years ago, still too early now. I am supportive of people working on projects to enable Bitcoin payments, but if people do that and there's not traction, then I've seen the negative consequences of that after the thirteen and after the seventeen boom. Where people are like, Bitcoin has failed. It's not being used for payments. These companies tried it. This country tried it and no one used it. So I've seen how these experiments can be turned around as a negative narrative to hurt Bitcoin. And I hear a lot of people bring this up, friends, family going, oh, yeah, but Bitcoin's not being used for payments. So it failed, right? These narratives are, are critical. And that's why I hit the, you know, I pounded the store of value narrative so hard over the years as I understood that this is what the problem Bitcoin is solving. Now, will it be a great you know, medium of exchange in the future? Absolutely. And it, it's a good one now with Lightning, but it's not necessarily solving a problem for people. I, I don't need immutable payments for my coffee. I need it for things that are quasi-legal, right? That's the whole point is it's potential censored items. Or if I'm a, bat, if I'm a political party that has been censored, um, so it's censorship resistant money. That's what makes it. That's its value prop. So, well, there are there are niche arguments against that. So, just on the El Salvador example, uh, when I've been there and I've been to El Zonte and spent some time there, yes, we don't need censorship resistant coffee purchases. But at the same time, like if I if I'm there and I want to buy a cup of coffee on my debit card, um, it's, there's additional payments that I have to I have to pay for. Before, so when I get back and if I check my card statement, for every kind of purchase I'm doing abroad, abroad, it's usually like fifty cents to a dollar every single time just for using my card. So there is that issue. Whereas if I'm buying a cup of coffee, I'm paying like mm. like under a cent in sats to do it. Now look, 
the argument might be is, well, you should be hodling those sats anyway. But look, I mean, I can spend a few here or there. I give some away anyway. So like buying a few cups of coffee here or there uh, aren't a big issue. So generally speaking, if I could load up some Bitcoin on my wallet before I go away. And and because essentially El, El Zonte has hyper-Bitcoinized, like everywhere accepts it, I can just go there and use that card. Also, I don't have to worry about getting cash out and getting dollars out. I can just go there and do it. So the, the examples are niche, but I do think as payments in that scenario, it works because, because El Zonte has everyone accepting it. If it was just one place, it's, it doesn't solve the problem, but because everyone does, it does. Yeah, there's some interesting network effects that need to occur here. You know, one is like wide merchant adoption in a specific geo. Um, that's where like the rise of Bitcoin being used in payments was primarily online because you, that didn't require that geo network effect. Also, you know, local knowledge of how to use it, right? Like you've got the supply side with all these merchants willing to accept Bitcoin because they're like, this is great. We have no chargeback risk but you need people who want to spend coin. So, you know, that's where we all kind of hypothesize that like store value era occurred first because then if people own it, then they could spend it. They have to own it first, you know? And so that that's where the store of value era comes in first. But I do want to check my Western bias because certainly I don't understand how people use Bitcoin in various regions. And so that's where, I, that's where I'm excited to check out like El Zante and other places because I'm sure there's there's a lot of different use cases I haven't thought of, and maybe I'm overthinking about it from like an ac- academic perspective. What about the implication on central banks? Um, central banks is always considered like the final boss, the the big enemy of uh, the big enemy of the people. Uh, Karstens, <laughs> yeah, responsible for uh, all the ills of fiat currency and the, the implications it has from us. But when do you think? we will see the uncertain of the central bank because in some ways, like right now, you can't, oper- I don't think you can operate a country with only Bitcoin. You need to have a, uh, you need to have a sovereign currency alongside it. Uh, Bitcoin works really well alongside the dollar in, in El Salvador. And when the talks came out recently that the government were considering creating a stable coin, to me, that made perfect sense. It made absolutely perfect sense that you could have a digital wallet which supported both Bitcoin and a digital dollar. Um, so I 100% get that. Uh, but at some point, we would all love to get away from these fiat currencies. But is that even possible, Dan? I, you know, I think it goes back to your point on hyper-Bitcoinization. It's not a binary event. It's an event that happens over time. And so I think the first time that we see central banks interact with Bitcoin will be them maybe purchasing it. Purchasing it as a substitute for gold reserves. People forget that China, Russia, and the United States, and Germany, and the UK have gold reserves. They still have those. Now, the dollar isn't one-to-one backed by gold, but technically they still have gold reserves. And so, actually, it's I think uh, Saifedean brought this up. It's an interesting attack vector if all these central banks across the world, they could try to go back to the gold standard because they have gold to fight Bitcoin. Where they're like, hey, look, we're going back to sound money. We don't need Bitcoin. I do see central banks that have gold reserves probably recognize the value as a reserve asset. So them adding it, I think would be the first step. I don't I don't see many countries going full Bitcoin for a very long time, you know, at least a decade. So, you know, I see it kind of as this gradual process of them replacing their gold reserves with Bitcoin instead. Um, some you know, countries who do it first will be at a very large advantage versus other ones if there's price appreciation of Bitcoin which at Bitcoin's current market cap is inevitable if more and more folks believe in it. Now, there's also some interesting game theory, right? So it doesn't matter if a central bank actually buys it or not. All that matters is that 
other central banks think that the other central banks might buy it. And that kicks off the game theory, a sort of prisoner's dilemma, right? To where if you act first, you're in an advantageous position. So I think that's where we, you know, it's not going to happen in a binary, binary fashion, but Bitcoin kind of occurs in fits and starts. And, and so um, that's where I think this will be more of like, no central banks have it. And then within like three weeks, all the central banks are talking about it. Or they may not be buying it, but they've at least talked about it because they're like, oh, this week Russia announced that they had bought $50 billion of the Bitcoin. It's like, well, what's the Chinese and American statements on that? So then it sort of kicks off the theory. But, you know, even before then, it's likely that that news would leak. <laughs> I mean, you know, if that news leaks, then people will be like, or, or if there's a rumor, then the other central banks might be like, well, we don't know if they are for sure, but we know that they could be, so maybe we should. And so I think that that could happen in like a, and that could be one of the huge price surge moments of Bitcoin. Central banks are the biggest purchasers in the world, right? They could well, go yeah. allocate 50 billion or a hundred billion dollars or a trillion. So that would only happen, I think, in very late stages, like when Bitcoin's in the multi-trillion market cap, you know, like like three to 10 trillion. Then we could see something like that happen where uh, central banks start to FOMO in. Uh, but I think yeah. we're a little bit away from that stage, but it could occur decently quickly. I mean, it could occur in the next couple of years or it could take five or 10 years. Well, a, a nation adopting it as legal tenders happened way ahead of when I thought it would be. I thought we'd have another cycle till then. I thought this would be a cycle totally. dominated by companies and treasuries. But we now have a First Nation and we have others rumored or certain politicians talking about it. Um, I think there's a different incentive structure, though, for banks to central banks to announce it. Because I think if you're a central bank and you've made the decision, actually, shit, we need to be holding this. There's no incentive to ever announce that because all you're going to do is push up the price of future purchases. Well, now, we can say that individually, but most of us are like, can't push the price up. We want the price higher. But for actual central banks who've made that decision, um, my expectation is they're always going to want to increase their holdings. So why ever announce that to the market? Well, there Unless might have been a decision that, yeah, there might have been a decision that this is the max we're going to buy and they want to pump their bags. So they would, <laughs> they would announce it. I mean, it's such an easy and obvious move. They completely control the, they try to completely control the economy, right? So why not? They're, they're used to pushing the economy one way or another. So why wouldn't they do that with Bitcoin? So yeah, I, I could see a central bank doing that, especially if they they want to start like a, you know, it's the, the world now is sort of like an economic warfare environment, right? Like, I'm not sure if we'll see full scale wars as we called them before. And we certainly won't see wars between superpowers. But what we might see are economic wars and wars of culture and wars of um, governance, right? Like socialism creeping up in the US and the UK. You know, that that's sort of a cultural war and China's and China and Russia are sort of behind that mindset. Um, so I think that economic war, like Bitcoin represents a very important tool where it's the enemy, you know, it's the enemy of the enemy. You know, the enemy of the enemy is your friend. And Bitcoin is that. It's the tool of enemies because we don't have to trust our other enemy. And it's, it's great because I don't need to trust them and they don't need to trust me. So... Bitcoin is this game theoretic coordinating function for folks to FOMO in because if you don't buy in and Bitcoin becomes the next world reserve currency, then your country would be significantly disadvantaged. And that's where I do hope countries like the United States, which with all its flaws, I think is still a great place to build build, and, and is still a great place for freedom. Now, again, there's a lot of flaws. I'm not, I'm not saying it's a perfect world. Um, you know, I'd hope countries like this buy into it earlier before other countries, because I, I certainly don't want to see a world dominated by China 
with their uh, totalitarian policies and uh, you know concentration camps and stuff like that. Yeah, and the the spread of Chinese ideals throughout the world, which we are starting to see with them, uh, with the Belt and Road Initiative, with them investing in countries and creating debt obligations. And it's, it's much uh, more insidious than that, too. Uh, I mean, they're funding a huge portion of Hollywood films, and so they censor yeah, what can I be know. put in those Hollywood films. You remember? Do you see John Cena apologize for his statements about China? Dude. Yeah, it was dude, so gross. Th- it was like this groveling, this groveling to these, you know, totalitarian regime. It is just what happened just with a, the NBA as well, so right? Oh yeah, the NFL too. Yeah. I mean, it was in in the NBA, the NBA as well. I mean, yeah. they stand up there and they 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 fight for things like kneeling at a football game. They fight for transgender rights, and they fight for all these things that are important. And then when it comes to an actual totalitarian state that has concentration camps, they're like, oh, I don't know enough about the issue to comment. I think, who said that? LeBron James? You know, Please buy my it, shirt. It just, yeah. It, I mean, it, it's just so disgusting to see the far left, you know, virtue signal about these other issues. And then when it comes to a really, really serious issue that's like life and death and, and I mean, concentration camps are about as bad as it gets. You know, and, that, and they're like, oh, well, I can't comment on that. And it's like, well, what the hell do you stand for then? I mean, if you can't talk about things that need to be talked about, then why do you think you, you know, you just, you pick on the issues that you don't get a ton of flack for, but what being principled and being a, you know, be, having someone, for someone to have integrity, it means speaking up when there's costs to speaking up. It's easy to speak up when everyone else speaks up and there's no cost to it. But that's the whole point is we have to stand up against totalitarian regimes like that by speaking up and their voices are big. And to see them do this is just disgusting, I think. It's just really gross. Well, I don't think they understand the full implications as well. I mean, they're certainly not looking at the things we're looking oh, at. They're not I, seeing... Oh, I think they do. I, well, I, think... I, I don't know if they're looking at CBDCs and tying that to um, social credit scores and realizing that you are completely under the control of the government. and They can completely debank you, take your money from you. They can set... Um, uh, expiration dates on your money uh, if you don't follow specific rules. I mean, do you know what's really interesting? I've actually um, I've interviewed two people, two Westerners based out in China in the last year, and both of them after the interview wrote to me and said, "Actually, can you not release that?" Because I asked challenging <laughs> questions. They were so scared of yeah. their the conversation being public, and I was like, "Well, why the fuck do you live there? Right? Like, what are in, you in doing?" The, yeah, in the United States, I think like a lot of people are afraid to say certain things. I'd like. Well, then what the hell's the point of living in the U.S. if you can't say whatever you want? You know, like, or not whatever you, I mean, obviously, like, there's there's gradients, but, like, the whole point of this, uh, <laughs> the whole well, point There's two of types this, of counseling, Dan. The U- yeah. U.S., you can get socially counseled. Right. Um, uh, China, you can get, uh, you can get counseled by the government, like, financially, and, and your ability to operate in society can be counseled. It's not necessarily true. The IRS went after certain political party members of the Tea Party a little while ago, where they, they specifically targeted. Yeah, the IRS specifically audited certain political party members. So, the U.S. has mm. a long history of going after certain political dissidents, but not at the degree of China, right? Of course, um, a very, very tiny amount of that compared to like China. But yeah, I mean, that's where you know Bitcoin. I think is that catalyst that <clears throat> that mind virus where you wake up and you're like, you know what? This is where I'll fight. This is where I'll put a line in the sand when it comes to like other things. I've, I've given up that to the government because it wasn't worth fighting for. 
But then you get to Bitcoin, which is your money, your hard-earned, you know, life energy, the time and the effort you spent to earn it. And you're like, this is the moment where I'll fight. This is the moment where I'm going to say, no, I've had enough. You've taken all control of my body. You've taken control of my money in various other ways. I've had enough. And I think Bitcoin is that. I think Bitcoin is that libertarian seed where when that gets planted, that changes the way you think. You get orange-pilled. And then you start mm-hmm. to go, well, wait a second. Why are drugs, why are drugs illegal? Why, why are we fighting these wars? You know, all these sort of different other aspects of, of government and how it inter- intersects my life. And so, you know, for uh, libertarians for a long time have slowly seen people accept more and more authoritarian uh, style of government in, in the Western world. And I think that Bitcoin will be the, the bounce back moment when that's the moment when people go, okay, you know what? This is where I'm going to stand and fight. And then that changes everything else. Damn. All right. When's it going to happen, man? Hyper Bitcoinization. <laughs> I think it's when like a large portion of the population owns Bitcoin, like 30% mm. or 40%. Then it becomes a political party. And then it becomes a bigger movement than that. It becomes like a, you know, it's a, it's a rebellion, right? You go, I, I disagree with these rules that you've set. I didn't vote on them. And um, I don't like what you're doing with the economy and my body and everything else. And I say no. Um, yeah. It's, it's like it's that. A, who, what's that statement yeah. that who controls the guns controls the country, but it could be who controls the money. Or maybe who controls the gold in the old, maybe an old time, old, yeah. like an old saying. This um, situation in New York, I saw the speech from de Blasio about mandating, and we're going on a complete tangent here, but fuck it. <laughs> uh, like, like, I've been very clear and very honest, I'm vaccinated and I'm cool with that. And I also completely, I am pro-vaccinations, but completely support 100% uh, that people can make their own decisions. I even emailed my ex-wife today to discuss uh, our son because they're making vaccines available to 16 and 17-year-olds in the UK, and I don't think or want him to get vaccinated. I don't think he needs it. Uh, I completely support free choice on it, and I wish we could have a reliable uh, source of information with regards to vaccines and their efficacy. It feels like a war of narratives, between those who are pro and those who are against. Uh, You know, it's very hard to get to the exact truth of them. That said, I watched that speech by de Blasio where he was trying to sell the idea of um, vaccines and saying, like, you're essentially, they're not mandating a vaccine, they're coercing a vaccine by saying, if you don't have it, your freedoms will be restricted. You won't be able to do X, Y, and Z. And I was like, this is fucking crazy because not just, it's not just crazy because they want to mandate a vaccine to be able to access certain services. But the fact that they're actually just fucking destroying New York, like one of the yeah. top five cities in the world, top three cities in the world. I mean, it's basically London, New York, Singapore, Sydney, like San Francisco, you know all this. And they're destroying it. They're at, they're, well, they destroyed it during COVID and then, now they're going to destroy it further. That's why I left San Francisco. 50% of the stores are still closed. And there's homeless people running around and like literally trash everywhere. It's it's like a third world country. It's crazy. And we just couldn't stand that vibe anymore. I mean, I'm from Texas and, and also for tax reasons and also cultural reasons. And also the mindset of San Franciscans is insane. Uh, the politics, the far left, the far left liberals are just out of their mind. I mean, believing that censorship is okay. All sorts of wacky things like that are like... Um, they don't prosecute burglaries. And I saw San this dude, dude. I saw yeah, this this dude running like, out of a TJ yeah. Maxx with like a hundred dollars of clothes because basically they don't 
arrest or prosecute under a certain level, right? Is it $1,000 or whatever? Yeah, there's homes that have been burglarized and they won't, they won't charge them on like assault. They'll charge them on like misdemeanor theft when they burglarize a home too, which is insane because in Texas... You know, it, it all goes back to property rights, right? Like, You're going to get you fucking own... shot. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's actually, it's interesting law in Texas. You're allowed to shoot to kill if they're stealing, not if your life is threatened, which is an extreme, you know, l- a length of property rights. And that property right extends not just on your property, but also on the property like yourself as a human as you extend yourself into the world. So you have the, the right to defend, but you also have the right to defend your property which I would rather have an extreme version of that than one where you have no property rights and no authority over your body or any of your property because I've seen what happens in SF and it's horrible. I mean, people are getting robbed all the time. People are breaking into homes. Their business at Target and Target's moving out of San Francisco because there's so much theft at the store. Most people won't start a store. I mean, it's a good example. It's an experiment of bad policy. Um, but how bad does it need we'll, to get, dude? I know, right? Well, I would say a good 20% of people I know in San Francisco left. So it's, it's, it's getting pretty bad. I mean, about 20, yeah, maybe 20 to 30%. Yeah, and, and then they make you feel bad. They, they go, oh, you're a privileged white male. You had everything in your life was handed to you on a silver platter. Everything, all your success can just be attributed to your race. And I'm like, I'm like that's not true. Um, certainly, yes, have there been, have I had privileges that others might not have had? Sure. But we can't boil every single possible issue and inequality down to race and sex. I mean, it's just absurd. You know, there's there's a lot of other factors in life. We can recognize that and try to fix them, but don't make me feel bad for. And we didn't. My family didn't even do anything. We fought on the side of like the north and stuff too. Like we we weren't racist. We we immigrated 150 years ago to fight for the north to fight for freedom. And you know, even if like. Why, why do people have to pay for their great-great-grandfather's sins? It's absurd. You know, how mm. far back, when, when does liability stop? You know, that, that that's, I think, the, the question, right? Like, when does when liability personal, stop? When personal responsibility takes over. Exactly. And I think, yeah, Bitcoin brings that back around of like learning private key management, learning, learning uh, you have to take your, you know, your own risk in your own hands. And so, yeah, going back to New York and COVID and vaccines, my thought, thoughts on it are, one, if it's actually about the science, then they would construct things very, very differently. Instead, it's this bullshit version of the science where they're like, oh, these restrictions come in a month from now. <laughs> well, if it's actually that deadly and that big of an issue, wouldn't you have the restrictions occur immediately? Like in New York, these, only, these happen in September, <laughs> these restrictions. So what you're really telling me is that this is about control. And also, I got COVID. It, was, it wasn't fun. It's like the flu. You know, COVID's a real disease. I'm, I'm not under the, you know, I'm not like, um, I think COVID's real. I think our assessment of how risky it is is very bad because it's not that risky at all. It's, it's like a bad flu. And yes, it's more lethal than the flu, but I don't believe in shutting down the economy for that or restricting human freedoms, right? And I think we're on the same page there. But, it's a fair nuanced you know, approach. But here's where the whole bullshit, the science thing doesn't make any sense because I'm like, okay, I've got an antibody test. I'm, you know, I'm immune. I'm, I'm exactly like a vaccinated person. I've got the OG style. I'm OG vaccinated. I got it. <laughs> I got it. And my body produces antibodies to, to give me resistance. And they're like, yeah, but that doesn't count. In New York, you can't walk around and instead of a vaccine card show an antibody test, they don't allow that. So then it's not about the science at all. 
It's about some sort of just objective thing. And that, that's what really triggers me with this stuff is I'm like, you know, if, if I didn't have COVID, I probably would have gotten the vaccine. And, but I got COVID. So I'm like, I don't need the vaccine. And I got COVID five months ago. So I'm like, I definitely don't need it because yeah, eventually some resistance wears off. But we had a family friend who, who was a doctor. Uh, he got his doctorate at, at Johns Hopkins and he's an epidemiologist. And he's telling us, he's like, immunity, natural immunity works. It's what kept humans alive for millions of years. You know, this, this should last a long time. And, and so the CDC and others are fudding natural immunity and saying, oh, well, we don't know how long that'll last. Well, it's going to last a whole lot longer than your vaccine. And it should be considered equivalent. And instead they're going like, oh, it's basically worth nothing. And I think that's just where like, cool, now you've lost my trust in, in science again, or your science, because you're not recognizing legitimate immunity that exists, that is natural. Instead, you're saying, well, we don't know, which is bullshit because we know that it lasts longer. And some people from 2020 who've got it say they, they still have antibodies. So yeah, if they were like, cool, if you have an antibody, recent antibody test or a vaccine card, then it would be about the science. And I don't, I don't agree with these restrictions at all, by the way. So I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm advocating for va vaccination cards or that those should even exist. I'm very against that. But if they were to do this scientifically, they would one, implement it immediately because it is such a threat. Two, they would allow antibody tests to be used. And three, this only covers certain types of businesses. I think that it's not required for grocery stores. So, <laughs> does COVID well, this, stop it? <laughs> it's just like the fucking airplanes, man. Because I'm back flying now, and you have yeah. to wear a mask unless yeah. you're eating or drinking. And it's like, well, what happens when I start eating and drinking? Right. It, it, it doesn't spread all of a sudden. And it's like, I know what it is. It's because some of the airlines sell drinks. Yeah, it's certainly on the short. I mean, it's just... I just think it's morons in rooms making decisions and making compromises. If you need to wear a mask on the flight, then it should be the entire flight, and that's it. There's no, there's 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 no middle ground. It doesn't make any sense. Yes, maybe you can take a sip of a water, but it it just doesn't make sense. But one of the things that's on my mind is like, well, a couple of things. Firstly, I I actually read a really good uh, Mises Institute article that Stefan Levera sent me. That actually, why isn't this stuff? Uh, these decisions make at an individual level. Like I had to go to a florist in Bedford the other day and pick up some flowers. And when I got to the store, she's like, have you got a mask? I said, no. She said, well, we've got my mother working here. She's 83. Do you mind if we serve you at the door and you wait outside while we arrange the flowers? I'm like, absolutely. That's totally fine. I'll wait outside. I totally respect that. Uh, you know, she, you know, that's your decision. That's your business. I get that. But the mandating that people that across all businesses that should be exactly the same is ridiculous because it's it's economically restrictive without the correct trade-offs. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things to touch on here. One is that ultimately the decisions around COVID are about risk. Mm. The flu existed before, and we don't walk around with flu vaccine cards, and no one asked you, "Hey, did you get your flu vaccine this year?" Literally, no one, no one had ever asked me that. We allow people to drive, driving introduces a lot of fatalities due to someone being sleepy, intoxicated, or just a mistake. We allow and we accept that that risk exists. So COVID is just another form of risk, right? It's like, okay, it's a disease. And also like STDs, right? Like STDs are a risk. And we just accept that like, oh, that's okay. But we don't like force people with HIV positive <laughs> status to walk around with a card. <laughs> you know, it's, and, and I think things like that in the 1980s, 1990s were discussed, but rejected because at that time they were like, no, this is really, really 
you know, even though HIV is, I'd say, you know, way more serious than than COVID, they were like, well, we can't do this because this like introduces a a really weird status and a really weird 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 way to operate in the world. Um, you know, it's you these things you can't you, like. What what I struggle with too is like, okay, masks, N95 masks. Those are the only masks that fit tightly and that are made to filter out the particulate, the you know aerosol that COVID exists in, right? Mm-hmm. No, no one wears N95s. They all wear like their shitty little cloth masks that their mom made them or something, right? I mean, it's not providing... The, <laughs> yeah, sure, it has some protection, but it's all just a charade. Like, they're all ill-fitting. They have gaps around the sides. They have gaps around the nose. How useful is that? Uh, probably very minimal. Um, you know, I think that it's it's these like really like these moments when you just get like, okay, well, what the hell is this all for now? So we we've got the risk component, right? Which is like, okay, society has accepted these risks as okay, but COVID is not an acceptable risk. Um, and so I think that that's kind of the fundamental argument of COVID is like, how risky is this thing? And then there's also the ROI, right? Okay, does COVID do, do these different measures of vaccinations and mask wearing save lives? Yes, but at what cost? So there's of course a cost to this. Suicides have gone up, and then we look at standard of living. Um, millions, hundreds of millions of people will have very negative outlooks in life because their business has failed, mm-hmm. and their children will too. And those children might end up doing more crime because they have a, a worse outlook in life, or suicides, or of you know, there's there's so many dominoes to what happens here. When you have central planners make these decisions, this is what like, happens where they they choose one KPI, which is like people dying. And they're like, we have to solve this. But they, but at the same time, they, they all of a sudden introduce all this other negative um, externalities that are massive. I mean, these are huge. What happens to kids when they don't go to school for a year or two? I mean, what, what if there's like 10 million new kids with PTSD because of this or with anxiety? And that reduces the economic output and, and happiness and standard of living by 10%. You know, no one can calculate this, so they ignore those those costs and those variables, and they're like, cool, well, we saved 10 old people. And it's like, great, but everything comes at a cost, and you're ignoring everything else. And then finally, in San Francisco during COVID, only eight people under the age of 40 died. Eight. Eight, that's it, out of a million people. So the cost really is, do you want to save people with underlying issues and very old people at the cost of the youth. I mean, that's essentially what this is. It's like millennials like myself, I'm 33. Middle school, we had 9-11. Uh, 08, I was in college. And then right when we're finally making money, COVID hits. And they're like, cool, we got to shut all economic activity down. Millennials versus the baby boomers own a far less percentage of the wealth in the United States than they did versus the previous generation at this age. So boomers at the age of 33 versus us at the age of 33, we own a lot less. And so really this is about, it's just like the boomers made the decision in 08. In 08, they're like, we want to preserve our bank accounts and our retirement accounts. So we're going to bail ourselves out versus them taking a loss, which is what happened with all previous generations. And same with now. They're like, well, we're old and we're scared that we could die from this, even though it's a very, very low chance, even when you're older. So we're willing to shut down the entire economy. And the young people, though, unfortunately, a lot of them have gone along with this, of going, yeah, this is a huge risk because we've, in our, you know, and this tying it all back to risk, 
As a culture, we've lost our acceptance and tolerance of risk. Risk used to be celebrated. Used to be celebrated of like, yeah, this is dangerous. That's the point of living is you take risk and it's fun. It's exciting. Yeah, hell yeah, it's dangerous. People die from it. But the whole point of building and building new things and taking risk is that we build a, a better world and you push your tolerances and you push what you thought you were capable of doing. And, you know, with the economy now, we're seeing like no risks are accepted. They bail out airlines, they bail out any company that possibly might fail. Um, and we also see this with health risks. They're like, oh, we can't accept any risk of people getting, you know, now they're like vaccinated people need to wear masks. <laughs> so it, it's like, okay, well, what level of risk is appropriate? Um, and so we've completely lost our risk reward mindset as a society. And I think we need to return back to a more risk on attitude. We can't make risk go to zero. We just have to accept that some levels of risk exist. And I think COVID, you know, turning back on the economy is an acceptable level of risk. This this is what we should accept as a reasonable level of risk. Well, I can't unpack all of that. Um, <laughs> there is a lot to unpack in in this stuff. I mean, my I obviously have a slightly different view on COVID than you. We, we share mostly um, the same views. I think a lot of the vaccinations have actually been about a form of herd immunity. Um, and uh, I think that's why there has been the encouragement. I mean, the, the stats are out there now. They're, there are certainly a, a reduction in the spread and there's certainly a reduction in death rates since people have been vaccinated. Like the vaccines work to an extent, maybe not as well as everyone says they do, but they work to an extent. Uh, I think what they're trying to put through is some kind of forced herd immunity for it. But I still think people have to be able to make their own decisions. I, I don't want to live in a world where you have to take an injection that you don't want to take. I think it always should be optional. And I think the decision on accepting people into your business is personal. And I fully support the right for anyone to say, you have to be vaccinated to come into my business because that's your business. That's completely your choice. Um, so I, I do I do support that. It's highly complex. But one of the interesting things is, you know, you can see a state like, and maybe not California, but I could certainly see somewhere like New York flipping red at some point where they think, holy shit, why, why is Texas getting all the smart people? Why is everyone moving out yeah. to Texas? Like, why is the well, economy booming there? What's great? Yeah, I mean, it's nothing in Texas. COVID's over. No one wears masks anywhere. Business is booming. There's not dead people lying around everywhere. Everyone's fine. It's, In fact, I just pulled up the statistics from Statistica. Um, death rates from COVID in the United States as of August 4th by state per 100,000 people. So this is essentially, essentially how many people died from COVID out of a population, out of a, you know, out of a hundred thousand. Texas is like, Texas and Florida are right in the middle. Um, top states are some of the ones that locked down. New York is number two. Number two most deadly state for COVID is the one with some of the most intense lockdowns. This was never about the science. Because the science shows, you know, through this state-by-state -state experimentation, Florida and Texas were right in the middle with almost no restrictions or, or very minimal ones. I mean, you were at Bitcoin 2021. <laughs> it was, uh, there was, I mean, Bitcoin 2021 was essentially zero restrictions. Um, but there wasn't this giant wave of deaths. We, we haven't seen that happen. Um, yeah. So I think that, you know, states are an experiment. And with COVID, they were an experiment. And the fact that most, you know, like California and New York won't recognize that the Texas and Florida experiments were successful basically means that they don't care about the science. They're, they're very dogmatic and they want to have control. Um, yeah, that was surprising. Someone shared that stat with me the other day. I mean, the lowest one was Hawaii. Hawaii had the lowest death rate. 
probably because they're an island and they restricted things super heavily. Um, and same with Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is very low, but Puerto Rico could have been tests were too expensive and they just didn't test, you know, and they didn't mark those deaths as properly. But yeah, Texas and Florida right in the middle of, you know, they basically had no restrictions or, or very minimal restrictions. Uh, well, I am looking at the the chart now for Texas. It does look like a third wave is happening. Not in deaths. In infections, sure. Yeah, infections, sure. But I wonder why there is that difference in deaths. I mean, has, has there been a high vaccination rate in Texas? I'm not sure, to be honest. Um, but I would imagine that Texas has a very high natural immunity rate. Uh, most folks probably got it. Yeah, potentially. I'm just trying to have a look. Uh, interestingly, the map I'm looking at here, the high rates are... This just feels like Texas has been like grayed out on the one map I'm looking at. <laughs> no data. It's the one place that's got no data. Um, nice. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's a tricky subject. One of the trickiest subjects with this is that I think we sometimes can, uh, or we are guilty of looking for confirmation bias. That is, I think, something I've witnessed quite a lot with COVID, if you're, um, you know, if you're someone who is, you know, uh, anti-vaccines, you know, anti-government, don't trust CDC, etc., you tend to look for the data which supports your views. Whereas if you are, you know, tend to be one of those people who's a bit more scared about COVID, you tend to find the data that supports it. Um, I had a massive debate Probably. with my brother about it recently, and. You know, he was bringing it, the data of the excess deaths in India, like a BBC report, that up to 4 million excess deaths in India. So I think people tend to find the data that supports them. I just I just always come back to the point that I prefer people to make their individual decisions and, and at least have the data. Like if if the data proves the vaccines work and if the data or, or, or are more effective and the risks are low and that a government's basically saying, look, we want more of you to get vaccinated because we want to provide some kind of herd immunity. At least say that. So people go, okay, look, hands up. I'm willing to be part of this. I'm willing to be vaccinated, even though I'm, I'll be safe. I'm willing to do that because it might help other people. Like at least allow people to make those decisions. But this mandating in New York, I mean, it's just like, it's, it's, weird, it's weird because I'm obviously vaccinated now, but I almost wanted like, I almost wish I wasn't so I could just reject going to New York for that basis. The idea that I, I'm allowed to come because I'm vaccinated, it doesn't sit comfortably with me. Yeah, I mean, look, like vaccines work, right? They, they work for many of the diseases. Um, vaccines work. The question is, you know, should government mandate it? And the answer is obviously no, of no. course not. It should not be a mandated thing just because I, I don't understand like the super liberal mindset of like, I control my body except for this. <laughs> you know, the, the far left liberals are like, yeah, sure, forced vaccinations. That sounds good. Uh Except for everything else, I want to control my body every other every other time. Um, do vaccines work? Yes. Should the government force everyone to take vaccines? No. Um, does natural immunity exist? Yes. You know, if and then you know, finally, the government really fucked up here in a lot of different parts because one, when COVID first started, the CDC said you don't need to wear masks. And to me, I'm a prepper. I had N95 masks because I'm a prepper. I'm ready for like the bubonic plague. I even have a full body suit. <laughs> I'm serious. I have a full have you, body suit. You yeah, put that shit I, on for me when I come over. We'll go out. We'll go out for dinner. <laughs> you know, it, it's, um, I was ready for it. And I remember in San Francisco, me walking around with my mask because we weren't sure how bad it was, right? And I was like, well, this seems kind of risky and we don't know what this thing is. So I'm going to wear a mask. I got shouted at and yelled at, you're stealing from the frontline workers. <laughs> it was absurd. And then 
Four weeks later, the CDC is like, oh yeah, actually we were just lying to you. You definitely need masks. And then everyone's wearing a mask. And then in San Francisco, they weren't taking them off. After vaccination started to roll out, my girlfriend and I would walk down the street and someone would be 50, away and yell, 50 feet away and yell at us, wear your mask. And we're like, dude, COVID doesn't spread like that. You know, it, 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 it's COVID, unfortunately, you know, very much like Bitcoin as well. Once you get orange peeled, once you kind of go down this rabbit hole of like, okay, let's examine just rational arguments. Most people are very irrational. They just, they operate on gut emotional feelings and they'll do whatever they're told. I mean, they're a very sheep mindset. Uh, most people are sheep. And so, you know, I think with COVID, it very much exposes that. And Bitcoiners inherently are anti-government and anti-restriction. Anti so they're the first ones to go, wait a second. I don't think this makes sense. Now, um, you know, there's a bunch of gray area there too, where like, you know, I think vaccines are effective. You know, I think there's some Bitcoiners who would argue that they're not that effective, but mm. they are typically effective. Um, I'm, of course, very anti-forcing anyone to do anything. So yeah, any sort of vaccine mandate is is horrid. Um, I don't, don't agree with that at all. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's been a very disappointing exercise in seeing how people react. And then the whole narrative building too of Delta variants, you know, this whole Delta variant thing, if you have the vaccine, you should be okay against Delta variant. No need to worry. And if you have natural immunity, you're okay with Delta variant. It's fine. <laughs> it's no big deal. You know, it's just the, the press feeds off of this anxiety. And it all goes back to, I think, the relationship between people and their state, their people and their government. And that's, I think, the beginning of the, our conversation and what this topic is ultimately about is Bitcoin nations. And the only way that a nation becomes a Bitcoin nation is if people start to reject what these few folks way up in the government who have no idea what they're doing tell them what to do. And I think that it starts with money. We're starting to see that with COVID. I think COVID converted a lot of people into Bitcoin, including an old roommate of mine. Um, you know, he mentioned, he's like, Dan, I didn't really understand your libertarian ideology because he was super far left. But he's like, now I get it. He's like, what you, what you said kind of makes sense. And he's, you know, he's kind of seen a lot of things go in a really weird direction and that aren't congruent with his former left beliefs where he's like, wait a second, this is, this doesn't make any sense. So yeah. I think COVID. I empathize COVID. with him. <laughs> you got the same thing? Well, I've been, look, it's, you know, I clash with a lot of Bitcoiners uh, because I'm not you know, for libertarian anarchists. Uh, but usually I think they're American and they don't understand. We're quite different in Europe. I know we speak the same language in the UK, but we're actually very different. We, are a mu we have a much more collectivist mindset. Uh, we don't have places like Texas and Wyoming and Florida and I think it is in North Dakota. We don't have that kind of uh, Republican slash libertarian mindset of leave me the fuck alone. I'm, I'm on my like we don't have guns really. The only people who have guns are people who like to go shooting on the weekend and uh, and maybe some of the criminals. But we don't. We, we're just very different. We're, we've we're much more collectivist. Like in the UK, we have a national health service. So shedding that uh, is it takes time. Like. Um, and I'm not entirely 100% sure I always, you know, agree with that or would ever become, you know, I, I always think I'll have these differences from you, Dan. I will always uh, have that, I've, I probably always have that small socialist element that sits on my shoulder and thinks about you know, my contributions to helping others. Like the wrestling with the idea of getting a second passport and going to a tax-free location does make me think, well, you know, maybe I should be making my contribution. That 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 does exist. I'll, I'll always be honest about that. Um, we are very different, but at the same time, I what 
Bitcoin has opened my eyes to are is is the reality of government and is the reality of centralized decision making and the flaws in it. I'm not totally sold on having no centralized decision making, but it does help me recognize some of the flaws. And I do fucking love Texas. It's it feels free here. I mean, it's my mood. I think very much changed the instant we got here. I mean, SF was so oppressive. Um, from like, look, I like the weather. I kind of like it colder. It was kind of nice. I run hot, so I, I liked it kind of cooler. But it's kind of cold and in little dismal. Plus the closed doors. Plus the homeless people. Plus the trash. Plus the vibe. Plus the you know the super extreme COVID you know philosophy. I just couldn't handle it anymore. And getting here, people are in shorts at the pool, no masks. It feels like I've hit, hit paradise, a, a paradise of freedom. People are like, oh, cool, you have a gun, whatever. I never brought that up in Texas and in San Francisco because people would be like, oh, man, you have a gun? Like, can why? I see it? It's, it's horrible. Yeah. It's, I'm like, because I want to defend myself. And they're like, <laughs> <laughs> how dare you? How dare you want to do that? Dude, so, it, yeah, gone- feel free. We've gone on such a tangent here. Uh, I, I think the, uh, the the original show title was going to be The Rise of Bitcoin Nations, but we've got to such a tangent. I think we're going to mislead people. Fuck, I don't care. I'm glad we have this conversation. <laughs> you're, 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 the, the, you're the person I'd want to talk to about this as well because you're uh, rational and reasonable and I enjoy doing it, man. So, well, I think the conclusion is buy Bitcoin, right? <laughs> buy Bitcoin and the more of Move us that Texas. believe in Bitcoin... We'll move to Texas and we'll create the first Bitcoin nation. I think uh, if Parker Lewis is listening, you know, I think he's probably thrilled. I, I bet he has similar ambitions to uh, create a, a Texas Texas Bitcoin nation. Yeah, um, he does. He yeah. recognizes the strength of getting more Bitcoiners there and creating that kind of base of uh, Bitcoiners there working together. Uh, he totally gets it and I support that. And I'm going to spend a lot more time there for sure, dude. I think, you know, El Salvador represented the first rise of a Bitcoin nation, but a Bitcoin nation rises organically. The percentage of the population owning Bitcoin needs to hit a certain threshold, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60%. And then people start to vote and start to move with their feet and defend themselves. And so I think that's when we'll start to see the rise of Bitcoin nations in its truest form, like a Texas or somewhere else, is when that population ownership percentage increases to a point where the Bitcoin, Bitcoiners aren't the minority, they're the majority. And they go, I'm not going to stand for this anymore. So, yeah, I think COVID represents that. The economy represents that. But I think all of that is intertwined with Bitcoin. And you buy Bitcoin because trust isn't required to make it work. Boom. Wicked. All right, Dan, listen, look, tell everyone how to find out more of the really cool work you do educating people about Bitcoin. If you liked our waxing poetically on various topics, (laughs) then you'll probably like the Held Report. The Held Report is a weekly newsletter that I put together, which is my long-form thoughts. So if you like hearing me talk in depth on different topics, you'll want to subscribe there. If you're on Twitter and you like kind of more fast-paced thinking, I'm at Dan Held on Twitter, and I tweet every day about various Bitcoin things. Awesome. Well, listen, I'll see you in the show notes. Love you, brother. I'm going to see you in a few weeks. We're going to hang out. We're going to eat some barbecue and uh, talk shit. <laughs> we'll get that picture of you on a horse with a gun. Dude, I want to get on that fucking horse, man. <laughs> I love horses. It's like it's my favorite animal, but I can't actually. I don't tend to go and like. We don't go and do horse riding. My daughter's allergic. But like, take me out, man. Get me on a horse. Get me a gun. I'll bring my hat. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Can't wait brother. to see you. Ciao. See you soon, Cheers. man. Hope you enjoyed this one. If you've got any questions, you know you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com or you can hit me up on my Telegram group. Outside of that, if you want to support the show, I only ever want you to do one thing. 
just head over to Apple Podcasts. Leave me a review. Hopefully you think the show deserves five stars. Anyway, love you all. Have a great rest of your week and I will see you all on Friday.